Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with Professor Farah Jasmine Griffin about her new book, Read Until You Understand, The Profound Wisdom of Black Life and Literature. Professor Griffin was the inaugural chair of the American and African Diaspora Studies Department at Columbia University, where she is also the William B. Ransford Professor of English and Comparative Literature. She is the recipient of a 2021 Guggenheim Fellowship. Professor Griffin, welcome to That Said. Thank you for having me. So I like to begin these interviews by asking our authors to tell us something about themselves. So can you give us a little bit on your background? Certainly. I am a writer, a teacher, a university professor. Um, I teach college students from freshman to graduate PhD students. I'm originally from Philadelphia, but I currently live in New York and teach at Columbia University. And your expertise is African-American literature, comparative literature, broad swath of writings? Yes. So I teach um, African-American literature and kind of cultural history. And I'm formerly in the English and Comparative Literature Department in the African-American Studies Department at Columbia. And how long have you been there? Oh, wow. It's, it feels like I just got here, but I've actually been at Columbia for 20 years. So you started when you were about 12. <laughs> I started when I was about 12 at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then I moved to Columbia. Yes. <laughs> so why did you write this book? What made you decide to write this book? Well, I'd been teaching African-American literature for all those years. And um, I learned so much from it. And I enjoyed sharing what I learned from with my students. Um but it also wasn't just something that I began to study as a graduate student. It was something that I had been reading and that informed my life um, for quite some time. And I thought that there were some ideas that could be very useful to Americans as we practice our citizenship. And truthfully, the book came to me um, during the 2016 election when I felt that the nation could actually learn from what Black thinkers had to say about democracy and about the United States. You write that the body of work of African-American literature bears witness to both the hypocrisy and promise of the nation. It debated the nation's potential for redemption against the forever curse of its original sins of genocide and chattel slavery. So can you flesh that out a little bit? Absolutely. Um, I think that the writers who about whom I write in this book, um, are very realistic about America's history. They don't turn a blind eye to um, America's history, particularly to the relationship of um, African-American people to the nation. Um, And it's a critical understanding of that history. But they also uh, have a sense of possibility that things can change, that good faith and good people working in good faith can change uh, a situation and make the nation a better place for all people, Um, make it live up to its ideals of democracy and freedom and liberty for all. Uh, So I think that all these writers kind of grapple with both of those things. And interestingly to me, the book is part memoir, and we'll talk about your family in a bit, part memoir, and then part academic study as you say, of how this literature 
informs our thinking and should inform our behaviors. How did you come to choose that structure? Well, I wrote the book, although it's informed by my academic study and teaching, I wrote it for people who might not ever find themselves in the classroom. I wanted them to know that, you know, they have access to these ideas and to thinking about them. And the reason why I'm so committed to that is because I was introduced to African-American history and literature and culture, not in the classroom, but um, in my family and especially by my father, um, who was a working class intellectual, in many ways an autodidact. And so it was very important to me to legitimate um, people who were not college students or college professors as having an investment in the kinds of ideas that um, I think these writers talk about. You write in the book that it's informed by a certain number of important questions that you want to help us think about and answer. Can you let us know what the questions are that informed your writing? And then I'd like to turn to Emerson Maxwell Griffin, your dad. Sure. So I, I was thinking, of why, what, what, what are the questions that I bring to this book, to this literature? And there were a few. One was, um, what might an engagement with literature by Black Americans teach us about the United States and its ongoing quest for democracy? That that's a pro- process and a project that Black writers have something to say about. And also, I think um, another question was, what might the literature teach us about the fullest blossoming of our humanity? Um, who, who are we as human beings? How do we treat each other? What are our responsibilities to each other? Um, how do we live in the midst of very difficult, complex, sometimes terrifying times? But those were the those were the kinds of questions that I wanted to address. Terrific questions. And you write that the study of this literature encourages us to learn the bitter truths of our history as well as the transcendent beauty and humanity of some of our responses to it. And anchoring this, it seemed to me, was Toni Morrison. So she featured prominently in your thinking. So tell us just a little bit about Toni Morrison, because we're going to talk about her books, but tell us who she is and why she was this anchor in lighthouse, as you call it. Right. And that's a phrase I borrow from another great writer, Ayanna Mathis, who calls her that, both our anchor and our lighthouse. Um, I think it's because she she lived long enough to write a full body of work um, and a body of work that, you know, addresses, primarily addresses a community of people, Black people in America, um, but in such a way that doesn't just show them to be victims or, you know, shows the complexity of who they are. And by going deep into the specificity of who those people are, she tells us something about all people, which is why I think she... You know, she writes her first novel in 1970, but by the time she dies in 2019, she's a global figure recognized globally for her literature. And I think it's because it moves people all over the world. Um, and so she, to me, is just one of those grand thinkers in the tradition of great thinkers. Um, and some of them are poets and some of them are philosophers and some of them are scholars. And, and I feel that she is one of them. And so she's really an anchor in this book. And in her writings, as in this book, there are themes that recur. Mercy, the quest for justice, the prevalence of beauty in the presence of death, hope in the face of despair. And and the way you structure the book is that you take each of those themes and you talk 
about them. So I'd like to reserve for a minute the notion that we're going to talk about these things thematically. But I would like to first turn to your dad because he really, as you said, set you on your educational path. So tell us about um, your dad a bit. Sure. So my father was um, a Philadelphian, um, uh, born and raised there. He was, um, had been a veteran of World War One, World War Two. Um, he worked many jobs, but his last job was as a welder for the Sunship Building Company in Chester, Pennsylvania. Um, he received his associate's degree from Temple University, he wanted to pursue higher education, but did not go further than that. Um, but was a voracious reader, uh, always had a paperback book in his back pocket, um, and a lover of jazz. And I think he was probably a frustrated teacher because anytime he got any child in front of him, he would offer instruction <laughs> on um, whether it be math or how to write or how to read or uh, history's, history of Black people or of the United States. Um, his favorite of my toys was a, was a chalkboard and chalk. <laughs> so um, I think that, you know, having a child who he could um, instruct was probably a way of addressing his desire to be a teacher. You say of him that he was a natural born storyteller and that for him, you believe teaching was an act of love. Oh, absolutely. Um, it was a way of showing that he cared. Um, a way of showing that he loved you. And for me, it was a chance to spend time with someone I love. I mean, I would, you know, happily be with him. But he also um, was a very good storyteller. So he made things seem very adventurous, whether it would be, you know, telling me the story of his romance with my mother or telling me the story of the founding fathers of the, of the United States. Um, and living in Philadelphia, which is an old historic city, um, you know, any any trip, any trip out to Center City could be like a field trip because there was history all around us and he would just make it come alive. What were his politics, broadly speaking? So by the time I knew my father, um, by the time I came into his life, I think I would, I later came to understand that he was probably a black nationalist, um, black nationalism. Um, but he probably started out as a sort of integrationist NAACP, um, Member when he was in college, uh, you know, very went, went to marches to integrate institutions and things like that. I think that probably, um, by the early sixties, he grew a little more frustrated with that project and was very, um, inspired by the younger, a generation younger than he was, who, um, began to talk about kind of black self-determination, black liberation things like that, a vocabulary that didn't come directly from his generation, but certainly spoke to him. Douglas featured prominently in his studies as and the life, which he was contemporary of, of, of Malcolm, also were prominent foundations of his thinking, right? Yes. So he, um, he loved Frederick Douglass. But, you know, when I think about this sort of historical figures that he liked. He, he, he actually liked Thomas Jefferson, you know, he, he liked, the, he loved the Declaration of Independence and loved the language. But Douglas was the figure um, who he was found most compelling. And um, he and Malcolm are about the same age. And um, he actually met Malcolm X. Um, and I think, you know, 
there's a, there's a way that, like for many young African-American men, particularly um, working class African-American men, Malcolm's story is something that resonates with them, that they, they find something familiar. And like my father, he was an autodidact, self-taught, um, and, you know, deeply, deeply committed to using his knowledge um, to furthering uh, uh, the, the freedom of Black people. So my father greatly appreciated and valued that. Your dad, though, wasn't a religious man, right? You call him as uh, more of a, a, a bebopper, a hipster, a skeptical of all orthodoxies. Is, is that, do I have that right? You absolutely have that right. Um, so my father was, um, he was a beboper. He's a jazz head and the beboppers were his generation. He kind of grew up down the street from Jimmy Heath, the great Jimmy Heath. Um, he loved all of those musicians. Um, he was an intellectual. Um, I think he was an agnostic. He wasn't an atheist per se, but he was an agnostic. Um, that's one of the first words he taught, vocabulary words he taught me. Um, on the chalkboard. On the chalkboard, right? Had a brief flirtation with the Nation of Islam, I think less for religious reasons, um, you know, just out of a curiosity for its black nationalism, um, but didn't stay there very long. Um, so he didn't necessarily not believe in God, but he didn't believe in heaven, hell. He certainly, he was not a Christian. So, um, and in that way, he, he was somewhat unique amongst our neighbors and friends and family. I can imagine. The thing that I wanted to talk to you last about your dad, well, there are two things. One is the title of your book is Read Until You Understand. And I would like you to tell us from where that title derived. Yeah. So as I said, my father had a bunch of books and he also also gave me a lot of books. And he spent a lot of time in libraries and bookstores. And there are two books that I still have. I've, I've carried them with me everywhere I've gone. Um, there are two paperback books. One is called Black Struggle, and it's kind of a survey of Black history. Um, you know, a sort of, it would almost be like now, today, it might be one of those like Black History for Dummies books or something, you know, just a kind of broad sweeping introduction. And the other one was a little teeny book of quotations by great Americans. The great Americans were everyone from Susan B. Anthony, Benjamin Franklin, H. Rap Brown, Huey Newton. I mean, they, this book included everyone. And they were little paperback books. So they were inexpensive books. And my father left me notes in them. And in the front page, the title page of the Black Struggle book, he said, um, maybe read this and understand. Um, you may not understand it at first, but read until you understand. And when I was kind of going through for different ideas for titles, and I had quotations from Tony Morrison as a title, and I had something else that I thought was beautiful and deep as a title. And I read that again, and I thought, that's what this book is about. Um, so I'm going to use my father's words, um, since he was the beginning of my pursuing um, this knowledge. I'm going to use my father's words as the title, because that's what I hope readers will do, and not reach a point of understanding as if we will become enlightened, but that hopefully we will all always read to understand and until right. we understand it the process of understanding exactly. is what he wanted you to engage in exactly. it right. so before we turn to your mom i can't help but ask you to tell us about your dad's tragic death because 
as we'll talk about in the book, there are many themes that occur in the literature and in your life that are very resonant today. And your dad and Freddie Gray, the man who was murdered in Baltimore when they transported him inappropriately, your dad and he have uh, a similar fate. Yeah. So my father um, came home not feeling well one Friday after work. And um, he, you know, began to have what I, I think I recall. I remember standing and watching and it just looked like a seizure. And um, I ran to a neighbor and asked her, my mother sent me to a neighbor and asked her to call. Um, I don't know if she has any phone ambulance or whatever, but the police came and they came and he was having a seizure and they stood and they just looked at him, two white police officers. They stood and they looked at him and they said, oh, he's just drunk. And my mother said, oh, no, he's not drunk. Please, please take him to the hospital. And I remember thinking, like, he's not drunk. But even if he were drunk, like, you should take him to the hospital. And they waited and waited and waited. And then finally, they, um, the younger officer um, said we should take him. And so they put him on a stretcher in the back of a paddy wagon, a police wagon. It wasn't an ambulance. And my mother and I climbed in the back of it. And the stretcher was not strapped down. So as they, um, you know, careened to the hospital, the stretcher would slide back and forth. Um, and at one point it slid and he hit his head. Um, and he said, oh, you know, to my mother, like, oh, my head. And we finally got him to the hospital and we learned that he was having a cerebral hemorrhage. Um, and that he basically had a stroke, you know, that, that night. And so I, I never saw him again. I mean, he never came home. That was a, a fatal night for him. Years later, when um, Freddie Gray happened and they talked about that ride in the ambulance, I called my mother. And this was, you know, 40 years later or whatever, longer than that, 50 years later. I'm I think like, Freddie, oh, Freddie Gray is 2015, right? 2015. My father died in 1972. So right. right. And um, I said, did you hear about that? Freddie Gray in Baltimore. And she said, yes, just like what happened to daddy in that, in that police wagon. So there have been so many times like that um, where my mother and I will have something contemporary, but it'll take us back to that night. And that was certainly one of those, one of those incidents. And you were nine, right? You were nine years old. I was nine. But he left you a, a wonderful legacy. In a sense, you don't want to see anyone pass that young and under those circumstances. But he did leave you the, the lessons he taught you and the books he bequeathed you became your life's work, really. In some way, you know, um, and I didn't know that it would become my life's work. I had no idea. But I immediately, you know, um, in missing him, started reading his books and um, trying to understand him through the books and music he left behind. And then thinking, well, this is something he would have wanted me to do. So I just kept reading. <laughs> right. You're still in the process of understanding. Exactly. I'm sure he, uh, though he didn't believe in heaven and hell, hopefully there is them and that he's up above and looking down and saying, go, yeah. you go jazzy, you know. Uh, you <laughs> know I, say, I say he didn't believe in ghosts, but we believed in his. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So. He dies. You're young. Your mom's young. So tell your mom and grandma ra- yeah. the responsibility of raising you. So tell me about your mom and your grandma if you want, but mom, more your mom. 
Right. So my parents had been together since they were teenagers. My mother believes strongly in puppy love, (laughs) the power of it. Um, They'd been together for a long time. She was um, devastated with his death. Um, But she took the responsibility of, you know, her, of raising me um, and, and guiding my education, uh, which she did. Um, She is, and is, she's still alive. Um, An incredibly creative person. Um, a very intelligent person in her own right, um, and very um, artistic, a lover of beauty, um, and just someone who I think has a deep wisdom, you know, a mature, always had a kind of maturity and a wisdom and, and, and grew more mature after the death of her husband, um, and kind of interestingly enough, blossomed in a way. As a woman, it was interesting as a girl to watch your mother blossom once she comes out of mourning. You write that your mom emerged from the formal period of mourning. She said to you, baby, it's time to come out of the black. Yes. And, and she enters this new phase of phase her life. life. Yeah. yeah. And it was really, it was really, you know, later on as I grew older and I became a feminist, and, you know, it's not something she would have ever called herself. Um, but I did see it in that way, you know, as someone who had been so identified with her husband who now has to take on responsibility. And, you know, to me, um, evidence of that was like, you know, how she got a little toolkit and she started fixing things around the house. You You, you say that you and she turned inward and the bond between you grew deeper and cultivated a sense of you and her against the world. Yeah. I think that's probably true of a lot of single parents and um, if they, if they don't have a lot of children, if they have one or two children, um, especially given, I think there was a bond that was really forged in the back of that ambulance that night. You know, when, when people go through something traumatic together um, and you try to come out on the other side of it, it forges a kind of bond there. Um, and that's what happened with us. And it was like, sometimes the world isn't going to be, um, on our side. Sometimes we're going to be going with the wind at our faces. Sometimes it'll be at our backs, but we'll get through it together. And so I think that was always the way we felt. Unfortunately, we also were supported by a family and a community that really did look after us. Well, t- tell us a little about, the, you tell a, a wonderful story about the guard dog and maybe you can tell us, <laughs> because it, it speaks to this notion of having a family, I think it was James Baldwin who wrote that family is not only the family you're born into, but the one you create, right? If in, if Beale Street could talk, right? That's, doesn't he say that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, when my father died, um, our family really surrounded us, but so did our neighbors. And we had a, um, the city had mistakenly torn down a fence in our backyard. And so leaving the back of our house exposed and, and it wasn't a, you know, it wasn't a bad neighborhood, but it wasn't a great neighborhood. I mean, you know, there were break-ins and things like that and we were vulnerable. Um, and so this might've happened while he was in the hospital, but um, certainly after he died, there was a dog that used to appear, you know, in the, at night and he would kind of just a big dog and he would be there and he would just, you know, sit down um, at the back of our, like a, the kitchen or the dining room window. And then he would leave in the morning. And so I thought it was magic, right? You know, I thought it was like a spirit dog or something. 
But I think um, my mother always thought that it was someone who knew us and cared about us would have their dog just sit and watch the house at night um, and then come get them or call them, call them in the morning. But that was one of the many kind of quiet, sort of anonymous gestures of our neighbors and our family and our community that took care of us. And it proves Baldwin's point of family is more than that which you're born into. Before we move on to the literature, I, I want you to talk one thing more about your mom. And you write of your mom that she was a, a third generation seamstress. And that resonates with me as my paternal grandfather organized the International Ladies Garment Workers Union, and his wife was a seamstress. And I lost a great aunt in the Triangle Shirtwaist fire. So we had that seamstress. Yes. Uh, garment blood in us too. But you write of your mom. My mother, through her sewing, engaged in the art of transformation. She transformed not only the fabric, but those of us who wore her clothing. She gave us confidence. Yes. I thought that was great. So tell us about that. Yeah, so, um, right, she was a seamstress and um, she worked in Philadelphia's garment factories. Philadelphia was a big manufacturing town at one point and so she was always able to find employment um but she really what her what she preferred doing was sewing at home um she had clients um people who she'd make clothes for and do alterations for but she loved sewing for her family her sisters her mother her daughters and um you know there was a sense that she knew us so well and that she was going to make us look good <laughs> um that she was going to tailor things to fit us when you know things in stores might not be made for our body types um and she always made people feel better so i had an aunt who had a stroke and my mother would sew her clothes and also sew a sling for her arm which had been disabled in the um in the stroke or another aunt who might put on a little weight and feel horrible. And so my mother say, Oh no, no, I'll, I'll make you some clothes that fit and look beautiful. And, you know, or, um, there was a sense of, um, that if you wore something very proudly, you say that Nina made it for you. Um, and you knew that she made it for you so that you could be your best, you know, that she wanted to help you. It was, it was something to help like a uniform to help you be your best in the world. It's funny, we talked before we started the podcast about all that she carried, the Aunt Ashley's sack. And I thought, oh, these are going to be two wonderful interviews back to back because your mom's, Ashley received a sack from her mom, Rose, uh, on her way to being sold as a child slave. And one of the things that she gave her was a dress. Yes, no, that's so true. I mean, I think... um I still have things that my mother, first of all, I love that book, by the way. <laughs> I love that, I love that book about Ashley Sachs. I, I, I love anything that Taya Miles writes. Um, and that's just so moving. And, and I heard Taya present about it once. Um, and we started talking about sewing. Uh, uh, so, um, I look forward to your interview with her, but I still have things that my mother made for me or that my grandmother crocheted for me. I can't get into those things, you know, I just made them, made them for me when I was 12 or, you know, or something like that, but I still have them and they bring back, they're sort of like, um, almost like security blankets, you know, that so much went into making this thing for me. Um, so yeah. The last thing on, on your parents, as we then segue into 
the book, you write, and I love this line, you said of your parents that their love represented the possibility of something wonderful. They guarantee that something as beautiful and wonderful as love could happen. Yes. So that actually is a line that comes from, um, I mean, I borrow that. I borrow that because James Baldwin helped me understand it. So in If Beale Street Could Talk, um, he has the couple talk about um, the fact that a young man they're hosting feels that way about them. And I thought, oh, my goodness, you know, that's what my parents' love meant to their family and their communities. Because I always wondered, why were these old ladies so invested in that relationship? And James Baldwin taught me that um, their love represented the fact that in this harsh, difficult world full of pain, something wonderful can happen, that something wonderful is possible, even if only momentarily um, it's possible. So that's, a, that's an example of one of those books teaching me how to understand my own family. And it's one of the themes that we'll talk about, which is the possibility of hope and how that informs our living. But on this concept of love, one of the things that you talked about, which I really wasn't familiar with at all, is this concept of outdoors or being a throwaway child. And your mom said to you, taught you that in your life, we don't put people out, we take them in. So can you talk about this notion of outdoors and being thrown away? I, I remember it appearing in the bluest eye, but maybe you could talk about it a bit. Sure. So one of the geniuses, one of the, part of the genius of Toni Morrison is that she takes um, phrases from the Black vernacular um, that, you know, might just be considered slang or colloquialism, um, and then she mines them for their meaning. So she has this whole section in The Bluest Eye where she talks about, where she has one of her characters talk about the meaning of being thrown outdoors. Um, and, and, and really, it's, it's a kind of dispossession, a kind of ultimate dispossession to be put outdoors. Um, and Tony, um, I, you know, you can hear that phrase also in a great Billie Holiday song where she says, um, her man put her outdoors. Um, so it's a real act of dispossession. And I think that the fact that the community judges it so harshly gives you some insight into the ethics of the community that they judge people. They don't judge the person who has been put outdoors. They judge the person who has put them out. Right. Um, and my mother always said, we don't put people out and take people in. And we often took people in. We took in all kinds of, we took in friends and neighbors and relatives and people from broken marriages or young girls who had been put out of their homes. Um, we took them in. And so I think, you know, just looking at the ethical dimensions of that and the other phrase that I, you know, that I heard growing up was, um, thrown away child. It's a child who received no care, no love, no um, no one cared enough to groom them or feed them nourishing food. Um, and it seemed to me to resonate with being thrown outdoors. Um, and so, you know, they would say sometimes, oh, you know, look at you. Why did you put that raggedy dress on? You look like a thrown away child. Or, um, you know, you, you, you don't want to be accused of having 
your child be a thrown away child. Right? So it was just a matter of what, what is the, what is the real meaning behind this colloquialism? Mm. And you write that to put somebody outdoors is the ultimate sin. It's an act against humanity. It's an irrevocable physical fact defining and complementing our metaphysical condition. So it, it's a very broad and deep concept that finds uh, probably origins in religion as well as in yes. structure of family. I think so. When I read that Morrison passage um, where, she, where she talks about that, um, I think, oh, yes, it is. It, it's sort of like what the only basis of judgment that, that Christ gives in the New Testament is like, how do you take care of the least of these, right? Um, and that we should feed people, we should clothe people, we should give them shelter. Um, and to deny people clothing, shelter, food, um, to imprison them, that those are the true sins, not who somebody was sleeping with. <laughs> um, but those are the true, true sins. Um, right. So it does come from a kind of Judeo-Christian sensibility. Yes. In, in the bluest eye, Morrison or her characters ask essentially, how do we treat each other? Do we mirror and echo the values of a larger society or do we live by an alternative? set of values. So she's setting out and we'll see this when we talk about restorative justice as well, which is a theme with her. But it's it's an important theme of how do we treat one another and what values do we want to bring to our humanity? Exactly. How do we treat each other? Um, And especially people who are already marginalized and oppressed who are going to be treated pretty badly. Um, How do we treat each other? And in some instances as as in the blue sky, not very well. Um, you know, she's she's passing a kind of judgment on a community that does not treat a child particularly well. It has um internalized um the values of, of a sort of dominant and oppressive society to treat the most vulnerable part of their community poorly. Mm. Bell Hooks, uh, the late Bell Hooks so sadly passing away just in December in her book, All About Love, New Visions, she talks about a love ethic yeah. as an active um, state of being rather than a feeling. It's an, it's an action. It's a choice. Um, and it's the foundation of justice and a conduit for freedom. So can we talk about love in that context and bell hooks? And, sure. and I think that um, Bell probably, you know, Borrows that is informed in many ways. I mean, it's something we see certainly in Martin Luther King, um, also, um, and, you know, others that, that, that love is an action, right? It's, it's a, it's how we exist in the world. It's how we behave in the world. It's, um, what kind of society we build. Um, it's the goal of building a more just society where everybody has more kind of equi- equitable access. So yes, love is an ethic um, that guides us in terms of not just our, our individual living, our daily living, but also the society that we're trying to build. Hmm. I'd like to pivot to the question of mercy, mm-hmm. because mercy and love seem to go hand in hand in some sense. And mercy forms a large section of your book informed by Morrison's book, A Mercy, and, and other writings. So can you talk a little bit about Mercy, what is it, and how does it manifest itself in life, in literature? Sure. 
So um, there, there's several concepts of mercy. There's, um, you know, God's mercy. Uh, there's also the mercy that human beings grant to each other. Um, and mercy is um, a, you know, if someone d- does something on one hand, if someone does something and um, should be punished for what they've done, they've done something bad and they should be punished and God spares them punishment, then that's an act of mercy. Um, in terms of human beings, an act of mercy might be, you know, person A is in a position of power and authority such that they could cause harm or they could punish person B, but they choose not to, right? Um, and so there's always the, the possibility of punishment for something that you you deserve to be punished. And you are not. That's an act of mercy. Um, and it appears in like the very earliest writing by African Americans, it's the young child poet Phyllis Wheatley, who says, "Was mercy brought me from my pagan land?" And that line has always been confusing to me because I'm like, "What did she mean? Mercy brought her from her pagan land? What did she do that required her? You know, might have required punishment or harm or?" Or, um, you know, and of course she has a deep theological understanding of what that is, God's mercy, because it teaches her Christianity is what she's saying. But it sent me on a whole series of kind of quests of um, who deserves mercy, the, the enslaved child who's been kidnapped and enslaved, or the people who enslaved her? You know, who are the, who's in need of mercy there? Um, and I think it's certainly the society that enslaved her that's in need of mercy. Exactly right. I think you're right that those who have received mercy, undeserved mercy more than anybody else, are white white Americans who enslaved black Americans and Native Americans for two plus centuries without any real consequence. Without consequences. Um, And so that seems to me to be a a sense of mercy. And the book opens with the concept of mercy and closes with the concept of grace. And, and there are two related, but I think distinct concepts that are often confused. <laughs> um, but mercy leaves me with more questions than answers. Mercy, you write, the question of mercy drives my understanding of black literature. Black literature raises the question of mercy in a variety of scenarios and certainly seems to value it as an eternal ideal to which we as individuals and a nation should aspire. Yeah. Right. That, um, it's, I think there's always the asking, and, and again, this is, you know, the title of the great Brian Stevenson's work, um, A Just Mercy, right? Um, that to whom do we extend mercy, especially when we are we're so invested in punishment? Um, what might it mean to extend a sense of mercy? Um, to even contemplate that as a society, I think, is something that the writers about whom I write encourage us to do. Yeah, and black literature is really replete with instances of the oppressed electing to forgive the oppressor as an act of mercy, Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to vengeance. As I think you noted, there's no black Ku Klux Klan. Oh, no. And, um, you know, there's, it's funny, my students say to me, well, we want to read, you know, we want to read books about black vigilantes. Like, you know, <laughs> where are the black vigilantes? And they do exist. I mean, there, there's literature about them. There's, you know, um, they even exist in some of Morrison's novels. 
but it's certainly not the dominant practice at all. You write that black writers, though, have prized the pursuit of freedom mm-hmm. way more than the longing for mercy. And it's better to strike a blow for freedom than to rely on mercy. There's your activist yes. notion. Absolutely. Because it's, you know, it's like, let's be realistic here. Mercy is a great concept. It'll be wonder- wonderful if people extend mercy toward each other, but we better not rely on that. Um, we don't want to be in a, put in the position where there are people who are our, our only chance at life is people who might do us harm decide not to do us harm. But that's not good enough. We got to get, you know, we, we have to protect ourselves from that. And the only way to do that is to try consistently to achieve a sense of freedom. And with the ultimate benefit of the dispensation of justice. Yes, absolutely. Um, that justice, again, is um, something toward which we strive, um, that we hope for, we expect, we work for, we try to build a more just society, um, always recognizing that we exist in a state of injustice um, for the most part of our history, um, so that we, we don't necessarily we expect it, but we know that it, it might not come. I think your father would be very proud of this conversation. He was a, a big fan of the Panthers and their 10-point program. And this notion of striking a blow for freedom and the dispensation of justice as opposed to the passive reliance on mercy is essentially what the Panthers were talking about as well, way back when, right? Way back when. And I think like that 10-point program, you know, my father being the teacher that he was, would show me that, you know, basically this is a very American thing. Like this 10-point program borrows its language from the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights, right? Um, that it's calling for, for Black people, the same things that um, the founding fathers were calling for the nation. Yeah, exactly right. So we're talking about the dispensation of justice and the quest for justice, again, is a theme in your book and a common thread throughout African-American literature. I think maybe Baldwin talks about it first and foremost by asking if you want to see whether our country has any love for justice or any concept of it, go walk the halls of the places where justice is administered and you'll see whether that's that's so. Yeah, he says, you know, ask ask the people who are at the bottom of the society about justice. Um, you know, don't ask the Supreme Court justices. Ask the poor white, um, the Latino, the Mexican, he says, um, the, the black person. Ask them how justice acts in their lives. Um, and so I think that, you know, for the most part, many of the novelists that, that I that I cite in that chapter on justice, um, what they're showing is how there is no justice. And so in the absence of it, what becomes possible? In the absence of it, um, in Native Son, for instance, in the absence of justice, um, a sense of self-knowledge, um, a sense of connection with between a Black person and a white person who see each other's humanity, um, a sense of mercy exists. Um, in Ernest Gaines, um, there is no justice, um, but there is um, love and there is grace. And then finally in Morrison, there is a kind of restorative justice um, where someone is made more whole, um, even though the person who does harm is not punished. 
she she rejected, I guess, retributive justice in favor of some long-term divine justice towards which the universe bends the Martin Luther King um, yeah. line. But she also is pretty clear in, in Song of Solomon, her character guitar asks, where is the money, the state, the country to finance our justice? Mm-hmm. And maybe we could talk a little bit about, because she's not just, you know, sort of waiting for the divine bend of the arc. She's got guitar and others talking about affirmative needs to acquire justice. I mean, you know, she, um, you know, she does give us some of the, one of those fictional vigilante groups that's an eye for an eye. Um, and says, you know, we can't wait on courts because the courts aren't for us. Um, they never give us justice. Um, and we can't try them in an international arena because that doesn't happen either, you know. Um, so, uh, we have to take it into our own hands. And she puts those debates front and center in the books so that we get to hear them. We get to hear um, people who believe in retributive justice. We, we get to believe, hear people who believe vengeance is the only way. We get to hear people who also believe that survival is more important because anyone who tries to um, engage a kind of vengeful justice, they say, is certain to meet with death there. So she puts those big ideas and she makes them palpable and understandable for us by giving them in the mouths of characters about whom we care. And in her notion of restorative or transformative justice, the the model victim is cared for and embraced by the community. Again, this sense of your family is not that into which you were born only, but there's a, a role of the family, the community in achieving justice. Yes. Right. right. Um, I think that in, in the, her, one of her final novels, Home, she often, in her later novels, she revisits themes that she started out with in her early novels. And one of her final novels, Home, she takes a young woman who's been victimized by a doctor, who's been a victim of medical experimentation by a doctor. And, um, the doctor will not be punished for what he's done to her. Um, but she will be healed by a community of women who not only heal her physically, but try to heal her spiritually and psychologically so that she can function in society as a person who will, as Morrison says, do some good in the world, right? Be a better person and a person who will not just accept and tolerate the kind of abuse that she suffered. So she's a stronger person. Uh, a, a more, um, a more dimensional, multi-dimensional person, as a result of having been healed by this community of women. Yeah, and the healing provides a space for this transformation. Yeah, absolutely, absolute transformation, and for transformation for her brother, who has been her protector, and who, in his own way, in another time in his life, has been a victimizer. Um, and is suffering from the guilt of having of what he has done. So um, her transformation also allows for a little bit of transformation for him too. Mm. You have a chapter called Black Freedom and the Ideal of America, which I'd like to turn to. And you have the two speeches, two famous speeches, the Frederick Douglass 1859 speech of the ballot and the bullet, and then the 1964 speech of Malcolm X called The Ballot or The Bullet. So can you tell us about each of their views about America, hopelessness 
in the case perhaps of Malcolm and a hopefulness, perhaps more in the case of Frederick Douglass? So, yes, um, I think that Douglass's hopefulness, you know, I see in his speech, the earlier speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July, where he, um, he, it's a Jeremiah, and he talks about like how, you know, this, the Fourth of July is meaningless to the enslaved, and that it's, you know, hypocritical to celebrate the Fourth of July as long as you have enslaved here. And then he sees the way out in the Constitution. He's like, I remain hopeful because we have this document called the Constitution, which I think is an anti-slavery document. And he's very hopeful about the possibility for change through things like the Constitution. By the time he um, does his, le- it's lesser known than the 4th of July speech, the ballot and the bullet, he's starting to wonder, like, you know, he's like, I don't know, you know, <laughs> um, we fought this thing and we freed people, but we still don't have our rights. We still don't have our citizenship. And that it's, um, you know, that this might require both the ballot, but also the bullet, like self-defense, um, or like in the case of the Civil War, going to war to make these things happen. Um, so he still believes, I think, in the possibilities of America. Um, although as he gets older, he thinks that it's going to be a, a harder battle to, to help the nation reach its possibilities. I think, um, Malcolm is never quite so hopeful in the United States. Um, the United States is completely mired in its sins of racism and white supremacy. Um, but as he breaks from Elijah Muhammad, who, you know, really did not encourage political participation, he does, Malcolm does begin to say, um, we have to use every tool that we have, and the ballot is a tool. So we should use the ballot. And he says, unlike Douglas, who says the ballot and the bullet, he says the ballot or the bullet. If the ballot doesn't work, then the bullet should come afterwards. Malcolm says, our forefathers weren't the pilgrims. We didn't land on Plymouth Rock. The rock landed on us. Yeah, there's that, there's that Malcolm humor. Right. <laughs> right. But to this point of acquiring justice, he writes that the African-Americans were brought here against their will not to enjoy the constitutional gifts that the Constitution speaks so eloquently about in which Douglas so fervently believed in. Malcolm didn't believe the Constitution was a an anti-slavery document. He thought completely the opposite. And he said, but now Malcolm says, now that we have become awakened, we have to begin to ask for those things that they say are supposedly for all Americans. They look upon us with hostility and unfriendliness. So again, here's this, no waiting for mercy, but achieving our supposed constitutionally guaranteed freedoms by action. Right, seizing them. And I think that for Malcolm, it's like, okay, so we do that. We have to do that. But Malcolm does say, you know, unlike Tony's character, um, guitar, he says, and then we take them, you know, we, we should, we should, we should take it to the UN. We should take it to the UN. And, um, because we are an oppressed minority within this government and that the, the international governments, will have something to say and will be on our side. So we're both working domestically, but also he's also always got his eye on the international um, as potential allies for African Americans. Right, as a yes. fundamental human rights issue. Yeah. Right, right. So it's interesting to me, uh, Obama gives his famous 2008 yeah. speech, and it seems to me on race, 
it seems to me that he's somehow trying to thread the needle between these two great thinkers. So tell us a little bit about how these thought leaders, Malcolm X and Frederick Douglass, informed Barack Obama. Well, you know, he's, he's, um, he's read them. Um, he, you know, Barack Obama is, um, a reader and a thinker and, a, and an extraordinary writer himself. So he's sort of writing within the tradition of, of those writers. Um, and he has, you know, in his, before he even gets to the speech, before he gets to the Senate in his autobiography, he talks about having read Douglas and Malcolm and trying to understand himself um, in relation to what they've said, trying to shape and create himself um, in a way that is informed by what he can take from them and what he has to leave behind. So um, we can see that in his formation as a political figure, in his thinking, and the difference between Obama and Douglas and um, Malcolm X is that Obama's not only talking about Black freedom, um, Obama is wanting to lead the nation, something that neither one of them could have ever imagined, right? And so he's convincing an electorate that he sees as a kind of interracial, multiracial electorate, that he is the person that, in whom they should invest their hope. Um, and so he is giving um, a sense of America. He's in all of his speeches, both a kind of realistic look at the America that we live in, but really giving a picture of the America that we can be, right? And convincing all of us that um, he's very good. Yes, that's the America I want to be a part of. <laughs> that's the America that, and in order to be a part of it, we have to make it. Um, and I think it's a, it might be an America that Douglas believed in, but certainly never thought he'd ever see. And Malcolm did not believe in it at all. Um, Obama not only believes in it, but you know, as a politician, convinced enough of us to believe in it that um, we went along for the ride. Yeah, he sort of tried to, I said, thread the needle. It's sort of the carve out an ideology of Black self-sufficiency agency that Douglas spoke about, but divorced from what he would call the disdain of accusations against whites. Unlike Malcolm, Malcolm said he'd like to purge himself of the white blood that's in him. And Obama seemed to embrace it. Right. Because there's a very different, you know, for Malcolm, he could only understand his white ancestry as being a consequence of slave masters and, and violence. Whereas Obama understands his um, white ancestry as being a mother and grandparents who loved him. Right. So it's a very different, it's a very different sense of self and then a very different sense of the possibility of what this nation can be as a multiracial democracy. I have two more topics I want to talk about. Uh, I think I'm going to extend us a little bit beyond our deadline, but, but there are two important topics. I think one of them, the next one I want to talk about, which is a big part of the book as well, is, is death. And you write that everyone dies, but Black death in America is too often premature, violent, and spectacular. And the particular nature of Black death haunts Black writing as it haunts the nation. It haunts this book, Born of My Own Mourning for My Father's Premature Death. So can you talk about death thematically, not necessarily in your life, although we've talked about that some, but how does it arise in literature? You've got Langston Hughes's poem, 
dear, lovely death. It happens in Beloved. So let's take us through death. Yeah. So, um, you know, it, it is, of course, we all die. It's the great equalizer. <laughs> um, all living things die. Um, and we all have mourning rituals and ways to acknowledge the dead. Um, but I think that in the United States, Black death um, is often violent. Um, it's premature. It's the result of inequity. Um, we certainly even saw that with the pandemic, like who died, you know, earliest and who suffered earliest from that. Um, and so that it's something that is, you know, it, it informs so much of um, Black cultural production. And I think also there's a kind of mournfulness um, that, that we experience, you know, there's a spiritual that says many thousand gone, um, that they're all the, what Morrison calls the black and anonymous dead. Those whose deaths were never acknowledged, were never recognized. Um, those who died violently and no one was ever punished for having done it. But these all seem to be kinds of hauntings I think, um, and we see it from the earliest literature to I end with the extraordinary Jessamine Ward, whose own work is haunted by death over and over and over again. And I think that it's our writers trying to help us make sense of it, you know, live with it, um, trying to give meaning to it um, so that it doesn't just seem so arbitrary and meaningless. You said that it gives language to our African-American community, our weariness but it also imagines for us that the harsh life that is the fate of african americans for so long is not an end yeah i mean i think that there are these spiritual traditions right um that almost have to believe that that the death in this moment in this world is not the end of that person's spirit or energy um, and whether they are imagined as someone who's in heaven or as, as ancestral spirits, that also haunts the literature. Um, or someone who visits you in dreams or someone who helps you navigate the difficulty of this world. I think that there's been a way of understanding death and afterlife that um, help to come to terms with or comfort, um, provide comfort um, in the face of such unrelenting and persistent death. It doesn't constitute necessarily an ending, but a change. Yeah, right. Is, that, that's the, that's the, um, the beauty of that Hughes poem, changes right. by name. Yeah. Yeah. So I can't end this interview on such a sad note on, on death. So can you talk about flowers? <laughs> I would love to talk about flowers, right? So um, the chat, the book ends there. Two, the two parts of the book that are really purposefully there to kind of uplift us a little bit. One is the, the chapter about joy and music. And the last one is the chapter about gardens and, um, and what I call gardens and grace. And so if mercy is you deserve punishment, but you don't get it, grace is just, um, just unmerited reward that you get for no reason whatsoever, whether you're, whether you deserve punishment or not, whatever. And I think of flowers as bits of grace, you know, just um, 
in their existence and their beauty and that they certainly were um, objects of grace for the women in my family who all had gardens. They were urban gardeners. They had little teeny, teeny plots of earth. Um, they took great joy in seeing a flower bloom. Um, and that flowers, I think, you know, there's a sense that one has a sense of hopefulness in a flower. Um, that, you know, in the worst of times, flowers still bloom. They continue to bloom. And I think that's true at always. But I remember when I was finishing this book, and it was during the beginning of the pandemic. I don't know if you remember that spring. Like, every lots of people were getting into gardening because we couldn't go anywhere. It's the only way to get outside of your house. So a lot of people were getting into gardening, including my mother, who revived her garden for her. But it was also... <laughs> Maybe because human beings had stepped away. It was the most beautiful spring. Like um, everything, all of this stuff was happening. Like, you know, we were frightened. We were nervous. We didn't know where the world was going. But the trees were blooming like crazy. And the spring flowers still came up. Um, and it was just a kind of moment of breathless beauty, or, or breathlessness, but also a chance to breathe, I think, Um so we can we can always find a little bit of grace in the flower. Right. And in Beloved, we have two characters, Seth and Paul D., right, who rely on flowers, in a sense, to obtain freedom, right? right. Paul D., when he's running away from the chain gang, he's told by a group of Native Americans um, who help him to, to get north to just follow the blossoming trees. Um and he, so he just follows the trees as they blossom from cherry blossom to apple blossom to pear blossom as the seasons change. And then lo and behold, he's in Delaware. Um, Setha, to get to the drudgery of the day, which is pick a piece of myrtle um, or another little yellow flower just to, to soften, soften her day. And then you had, of course, the Tupac poem, The Rose That Grew in Concrete, right? Exactly. The, did you hear about the rose that grew uh, from a crack in the concrete, which is this hopeful, we can all be these roses that grew in concrete. Always. I mean, because life is always trying to find a way to come into being, even through the concrete. Yeah. You have a wonderful line. You say, flowers like songbirds overhead are a reminder that though the world is full of ugliness, meanness, hatefulness, there is always grace. Yeah. And you I, end, and you, and you start your book, your first, your first sentence of the book says, this book begins with a girl and ends with grace. Yeah. And if I can leave us with that, I mean, I think that if, if readers can come away with only that, um, to be, to look for the moments of grace, to be vehicles of grace to other people, to each other, then that's, that's a pretty good way to be. It's a pretty good way to be indeed. In the introduction of the book, you wrote that you hoped that by exploring the writings of these authors, the readers would learn many important lessons they contain for all people interested in the survival of this fragile democracy and the planet on which it exists. That's my hope. It's a big hope, <laughs> but that's my hope at least to, um, at least to begin thinking about what our own contributions can be to, to, to the survival of both, both the democracy and the planet. The book is titled read until you understand the Profound Wisdom of Black Life and Literature. And Professor Griffin, this was a masterful book, and this was a wonderful conversation, and I'm so grateful for you taking the time to speak to me today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I've, I've so enjoyed talking to you.
That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.